In general, I like to think that I'm a pretty good life partner. Generally patient and kind and uh, show up generally. But I do have some, I definitely have some character flaws. Um, And one of those is that I'm often running late. So I think I mentioned that I've been in retreat, mostly in solitary retreat in a cabin in Oregon since November. And the setup is I live in a cabin, no electricity, cold running water, and then my partner lives in a tent with stones throw away. But we're pretty strict. We've been in silence. Uh, He comes to get his meal, and then he eats it outside. And we talk once a week on Fridays. And Fridays are a big deal because we do big ritual together. So we meet at 9 a.m. sharp. So one early morning, Friday, early on in the retreat over the winter, it was very snowy. And I woke up. I was doing my morning practice, doing my routine. And then this big issue arose in my mind. Big argument I have often with him. And it's, I had an issue about one of his big character flaws. And I was going on and on in my mind. Like, I'm going to tell him today's the day. I'm going to give him this feedback. And it's going to be gentle, but also direct. And this is what I'm going to say, and this is why. I'm building this huge case. As I was practicing, making my breakfast, eating my breakfast, getting ready, so wound up in all of my righteous indignation that when I finally thought to look at the time, I was seriously late. So what happened there? So hijacked by aversion, I had forgotten to really be in touch with what was happening, what was going on in the moment, completely lost track of time. So this talk is about what hinders our practice. What gets in the way? What hijacks? What sideswipes us? What takes us away from this building momentum of moment-by-moment mindfulness? In Pali, there is a, a beautiful list of the nivaranas. Nivarana. So this word is often translated as hindrance in English. But I don't really like that translation because it feels like it has all these negative connotations. I shouldn't have these hindrances. There are too many of them. I'm all obstructed and hindered in my practice. I think it sets up a kind of judgment, an attitude that we have that the hindrances are bad. And the meaning of nivarana literally does mean something that obstructs that is an obstacle that gets in the way of growing clarity. These overpower wisdom, they produce blindness, cause lack of vision and ignorance, obstruct wisdom, associate with distress, and are not conducive to awakening. That's what the Buddha said. So they're sometimes unpleasant, but I found, and this is hopefully what I want to say tonight, is that often 
we learn, we learn about them by experiencing them. And they're so common in our daily lives, and especially here in retreat, that we have this big opportunity to learn how to work with them skillfully so that ideally we can move along the path with clarity and skill less and less and less hindered in our practice. So maybe you've experienced some of these in the last few days, maybe. There's a, com, comes in a list of five, and for many years I was pretty aversive to these lists. I mean, there's lots of lists. Many of you have probably heard this list lots of times. But over the years, what I've found is that as we not only hear the list, but as we live them and feel them in our body, it's so important and helpful to have names for our experience and to recognize, oh, this is an important list because the Buddha worked with these. And all of his students also worked with this list, very handy. So they become alive to us as we hear again and again for the millionth time about the five hindrances. So I'll list them for you here and then talk a little more in detail. So first one, sensory desire. Second is aversion. Third, sleepiness and dullness. Fourth, restlessness and worry. And fifth is doubt. So these nivaranas, they come up a lot in the suttas. That when we are hindered by these five, we don't understand, we can't really see for ourselves the welfare of ourselves, of others, and the welfare of both. We can't really see things as they are. And in a well-known simile, these hindrances or nivaranas are likened to impurities in gold. So that as we practice, these defilements are uh, purified. And just like gold, the mind becomes malleable and pliant and bright and workable. So that's the process that we're in, that we're all in together. My good friend, another Dharma teacher colleague named Jeannie Corrigal from Canada, she says that when we're free of the nivaranas, it's like we're an otter in an otter slide. You know, you get in the otter, you get in the otter slide, and there is nothing going to stop you from getting into the river. You just slide right down that rock. And that's the feeling. When we become really skillful with these, it's like nothing's going to get in your way. You slide right down into the river. There's lots of really wonderful, alive similes. And one related to this list of hindrances is how it feels when we're free of them. So the Buddha said that when we're free of sensory desire, it's like we're free from debt. Anybody have student loan debt? I'm still working on mine. Or mortgage, car payment. You know, how it is to live with these debts. And then how is it to actually have paid them off? Be free of that burden. 
Being free from aversion is like recovering from a serious illness. Have our strength and health again. Freedom from sleepiness is like being released from prison. Freedom from restlessness is being emancipated from bondage. And freedom from doubt is like we've had, we've had to cross a dangerous desert and we've arrived in a place of safety. So just that sense of relief. So just as there's a list for the hindrances, there's this list of freedoms that are also possible for us. Right? This is what the Buddha taught. So how do we work with them? Sounds pretty good, how, you know, get free of them, but how? <laughs> and so I like to say, hello, little Nivarana. Hello, little neurosis. Here we are. You know, maybe a, a kind of bow, a friendliness, a welcoming even. Okay, you're here. I see you. So we're getting friendly with them, we're softening our attitude around them, and we're really getting to know them, to understand how they function. And as we grow in that understanding, we start to see how they're caused and also how they're uprooted. And this was the simplicity of of these practices. Sometimes we get all confused, like, okay, all the antidotes, i got to remember, what do I do when I'm in desire? What do I do when I'm in aversion? (laughs) Sleepy, restless. But really, so basic, in the Satipatthana Sutta, the Four Foundations of Mindfulness Sutta, which is a very important text in this lineage, the Buddha is very clear. He says, how, in regard to these nivaranas, do we abide contemplating these nivaranas? Here, if doubt is present within, one knows doubt is present within. That's it. Hello, little doubt. If doubt's not present, one knows doubt isn't present in me. One knows how unarisen doubt can arise, how arisen doubt can be abandoned, and how abandoned doubt will not arise in the future. So that's really all we're doing. We start to recognize them, and then understand how they function so that we can prevent them from arising in the future. And what's magic about this practice is that that happens already. We're not forcing that wisdom to come. When wisdom comes, and I know you've had this experience, it's like grace, you know? Oh, look, something changed in me. Less desire. So a lot of this is about faith. It's about bowing, hello, little Nivarana, and then trusting that mindfulness will do most of the rest of the work. So the reason I want to emphasize the simplicity of this, just naming them, recognizing them, bowing to them, is that we really try hard to get rid of them through meditation. Have you noticed that at all in your own mind? Oh, if I just meditate better, I won't be so restless. Just going to get through the, last, the first few days of this retreat so that my mind will be settled and I won't have all of these thoughts. 
So really easy to try to use mindfulness as a bypass of these. Or even when we, we feel growing concentration happening, we start to use samadhi, this word that's often translated as concentration or unification of the mind. We use that to suppress the hindrances. And we think, oh, that's what good meditation is. I'm just sitting here in a lot of bliss and pleasant and not having any obstacles. But really, that's just a temporary fix. You know, it's like putting a rock over the grass. And then when we remove the, the rock and we lose some of our concentration, all the grass pops up again. So we need this wisdom. We need this understanding, this friendliness with them so that we really get to understand how they're functioning in our mind. It's easier said than done. So Ajahn Tiradamo says this, that the way he works with them, he says, we clearly and wisely acknowledge the Nivaranas as impermanent, causally conditioned phenomena. We then investigate to remove the initiating causes and the Nivaranas cease. In this way, they're finally resolved. So sensory desire. This is kamachanda in Pali. And it's really any kind of reaching out for sensory experience. And this can cover all the senses, looking for beautiful objects to see, hearing beautiful sounds, getting the best walking area, craving some taste or smell, right? Bodily, pleasant bodily experience. It can even arise in the mind where we're looking for something pleasant to think about. We're reviewing our favorite movie, favorite TV show, or some fantasy arising about vacation or whatever it is. We're looking for something pleasant in all of the six senses, five sense bases in the body and the mind is the sixth. So another simile, this is likened to water with dye in it. So water, when it's clear, we can see clearly. When it has like a red dye in it, everything is colored by this. So sensory desire colors our whole experience. All we can see is what we want. The sense of reaching out, tumbling forward out of our experience for something we we don't have. So I tend to work a lot with sensory desire, a lot of it, especially in retreat. And over these last months, you know, living very simply, no electricity. So we have a Coleman stove that I just make the same thing every day, like rice and beans for lunch, you know, same, same. Generally, that's fine. It's very simple living. (laughs) But when my birthday rolled around in February, I was like, what I really want for my birthday is a cinnamon roll. (laughs) Just really wanted one. And I'm gluten-free, so it had to be the special kind of cinnamon roll from the bakery in town that's an hour down the mountain. And what happened when I noticed this, this was like weeks before my birthday. <laughs> this craving is starting. And what I noticed was there is like a really quick switch from wanting the image, the feel, you know, the imagination of the cinnamon roll, wanting it, and then shame. I should not want this. I am a hardcore yogi, I live in a cabin, (laughs) and this is frivolous, 
and I shouldn't. I can't tell anybody. Here I am confessing to all of you. (laughs) Really a lot of like, this shouldn't be happening. You can't want this. And when I noticed, it wasn't so much the desire, but the shame about it that was getting in the way. And I've been talking to some of you even today around those two steps. Like we have the difficulty and then the mind's attitude about the difficulty is really the most painful thing. So when we feel that desire, if we can step to look at how am I relating to this experience? Am I shaming myself? Am I creating a whole identity about this person who craves cinnamon rolls and retreat? Or can I just know it as, oh, like image of cinnamon roll. That's pleasant. Wanting. And notice as I worked with this over time, I could notice how it would come and then it would go. You know, after lunch, I was pretty full. I didn't really want a cinnamon roll. So again, seeing that impermanent nature of it helped me release some of the shame. And as I got down through those layers, the wanting became less and less. And finally, this is maybe a week before my birthday, I woke up, I was like, I think I'm going to be okay without a cinnamon roll. (laughs) Maybe I actually don't need it. Maybe I don't need to ask. That was a moment of freedom, right? The release from debt. And then, of course, it's the happy ending to the story. I have a really lovely father who knows me, and he went out of his way to go to the special bakery and send a cinnamon roll for my birthday. But then I have to say, the experience of eating it was even better because I didn't even really want it by then. You know, I could just enjoy it. And then when it was gone, I was like, I'm good, you know? Didn't need another one. So that's kind of the magic of getting released from them. Then you can go enjoy it, right? Enjoy life. But you don't have that obstacle, like the stickiness, the clinging to it. That's what we're doing here. Desire in itself is not bad. It's just when we feel bonded to it, right? Like it's not going to be okay. Like that. Coleman Barks has this beautiful translation of Rumi. This is how a human being can change. There's a worm addicted to eating grape leaves. Suddenly, he wakes up. Call it grace, whatever. Something wakes him, and he's no longer a worm. He's the entire vineyard and the orchard too. The fruit, the trunks a growing wisdom and joy that doesn't need to devour. We can be that. We can use our desire to uh, come to a sense of aliveness that isn't so much about wanting, but it's a, a beautiful participation in being a human right now in this world. So second hindrance is viapada in Pali. And it's any kind of pushing away of experience. So similar, where pleasant experience brings desire, unpleasant, any kind of unpleasant sensation, often we have this kind of pushing away. And this can be subtle, just a tiny irritation, all the way through, up through anger, rage. You know, Tuari talking about the fits of rage, about someone coughing, or whatever happens, small thing in retreat, and all of a sudden we're in it. 
So this is likened to water boiling. You know, when it's so hot, it's so agitated, we can't see clearly through it. And aversion is really unpleasant. You know, often we have aversion to the aversion because it doesn't feel good in the mind. So you're going to hear a lot of stories about retreat. (laughs) There's another one. Um, Again, in the wintertime, a lot of snow. And I hit this period of of tapping into really past, like deep pain from the past. I had a lot of heartbreak. I had a lot of anger and rage coming up. And I have several teachers who support me in retreat. One of them is Eugene. And because I don't have cell reception, I have to hike up the mountain. So in the snow, you know, it's a whole thing. I've got my snowshoes. I'm hiking up the mountain to make this phone call once a month. And so I was calling Eugene, and I was so mad. It's really just in rage. And like a good teacher, he was like, okay, let's do this. He was like really encouraging me to express it. It's like, are there rocks around? Can you throw rocks? <laughs> and so I was really getting into just the felt sense of this anger. No shame about it, you know? I was like, okay, we're just going to do this rage. So I was throwing rocks. I mean, I'm in the wilderness, you know? This is BLM land. I feel like I'm alone. I'm throwing rocks, and I'm dropping F-bombs. I'm, like, in it, right? I'm so mad. And it actually, there felt like a beautiful kind of cathartic moment. Right then, I see another yogi walking up the mountain. And she goes right past me as I'm like in it. First, I felt just shock. Like, wait a minute. (laughs) Nobody else is supposed to be here. And I had forgotten that the other cabin was full, right? She was on retreat too. I had a little glimpse of embarrassment about it. But really what came after was the sense of, it's really, it's okay. You know, it's okay to have felt that rage and to have expressed it. But that's kind of what we do in retreat. We feel all the feels. They all come. And here it's a little different environment. But in general, when, you know, we have a lot of anger, it's good to throw rocks, get it out, you know. It felt healthy to me. So that was a really good learning to watch, like, oh, I don't have to have that second layer of embarrassment, of shame, of, oh, my God, what if she heard me? It was like, oh, it's just in a moment of rage, and it's okay. It's really okay. Saida Utejaniya, who's a beloved teacher of a lot of us, he's a Burmese monk. He says, right attitude allows you to accept, acknowledge, and observe whatever's happening, whether pleasant or unpleasant, in a relaxed and alert way. Don't try to create anything, such as a positive mind state, because trying to create something is greed. Don't reject what's happening, such as a negative mind state, because rejecting what's happening is aversion. So I think this is a beautiful frame for practice. Can we just have right attitude about whatever is happening? You know, a phrase that he offers often is that this is just nature. You know, whatever's arising, there's causes and conditions in this body and mind. And can I hold it with a lot of respect? Hello. I bow to my rage. You're here with me, okay? 
So that first step of friendliness allows spaciousness. It's a loosening of the heart. So that then we start to learn an appropriate response. Okay, what's the skillful thing to do here? And it becomes quite creative because we don't know what the skillful thing is. In any moment, it can be a different answer. Sometimes it's screaming and throwing rocks. But other times it might be just taking a long walk, taking a bath, just coming back to the breath. So sleepiness and dullness, the archaic translation of these, of tinamida in Pali, is sloth and torpor. So you can kind of get a feeling for that, sloth and torpor. But I like tinamida because it's pointing to the body and the mind experience. So tina is the body feeling sleepy, dullness in the body. And mida is a kind of dullness in the mind, laziness, lethargy in the mind. So lack of driving power, drowsiness, lethargy, sleepiness. And the image is that this is likened to water with algae grown over. You know, it's thick, like kind of sloppy. Can't really see very clearly the water. Anybody feel sleepy today? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, that's so normal, especially in the beginning of retreat, the first few days. It's like we've been running, 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 running. Our metabolism is going a certain pace. And then we hit, you know, here. Nothing's happening. Gave up all your phones, your distraction. And so the body often just feels that kind of like whiplash. Like, oh, you know, all the fatigue we might be carrying in daily life catches up with us here. It might actually be true that you just need to sleep more. And then there's a kind of sleepiness and dullness that comes when we're also resisting our experience. So sometimes there's something painful that's coming up or something difficult, and the mind says, oh, it's easier to just fall asleep rather than look at this. So sinking mind, we call this sometimes. We're just sinking, 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 getting more and more and more sleepy, nodding off, getting dull. Sharon Salzberg calls this the ooze. You're just oozing through the day, like slime mold. So I research, I did some research on slime mold. There's a, a study released in Canada. Um, they de- okay, so they demonstrated that slime mold is fantastically efficient at finding the quickest route to food. So the scientists placed rolled oats over the country's population centers and this slime mold uh, over Toronto. And this slime mold grew its way across the Canadian map. So apparently it it says it sprouted tentacles that mimicked the Canadian highway system. (laughs) Slime mold grew like miles. And it's been, this experiment has been replicated globally in Japan, in the UK, and the US all with a similar outcome. So just uh, some trivia, I didn't know this, but slime mold is not a plant or an animal. It's not a fungus, but it's a soil-dwelling amoeba. 
It's like a, a single-celled organism. And I kind of think that was a good, like, image for dullness. <laughs> Do we sometimes just feel like we're a single-celled organism, we're just, like, moving through the schedule, going to get food, go to your nap? Sometimes in the first few days, that's how I feel. So this, this piece about discerning why are we sleepy, I think is really a good, uh, it's a good place to practice. Because as I said, sometimes we just need a nap, we need to sleep. But other times, it's, it can be a kind of dissociation when the mind is really dulling out. And it can be important to, to notice that distinction, especially if we're working with a lot of pain, past trauma, the mind can actually dissociate. It's like a shutter falls. And in fact, it's a protective defense. And this, in, in practice, again, very important to respect, to respect that and to know the difference. So for me, when I notice that kind of freeze coming on, it's much more like I can't, I can't feel my body. I don't have sensation. It's just like everything's kind of frozen, shut down. When I'm sleepy, I can feel, and it's a pleasant tone. You know, there's a softening, a kind of sweet dullness, like easing into sleep. There's, there's a lot of feeling there. And so discerning can be a really good skill to train, to notice what's in the mind right before you get sleepy. You know, is there something that, that's painful that triggers that? Or some reason, okay, I need to actually just not be mindful right now. And that's important to honor, to really honor, okay, I'm just going to, you can be mindful of the freeze. You can know that that freeze is happening. Ride it through. Come back to the breath. A lot with a lot of compassion. And same thing with sleepiness. You know, there's a lot of skillful means we can do, and I think we've been naming them. You can stand up. You can pull the ears. It's kind of a, a long-standing piece of advice. And the joke is that that's why the Buddha's ears are so long. <laughs> Keep pulling them. I think it's like an acupressure or something. Um, or, you know, it tends to be warm in here, so you can kind of take off a layer, get a little cooler in the body. That can help wake us up, open your eyes. But also it's that same bow. You know, it's that same sense of, oh, okay, I'm sleepy. But not really a problem. Often, you know, you can kind of doze off. I did this yesterday. You kind of doze off and practice. And then when you wake up, you just keep going. Not much of a problem, really. No shame in that. Yeah. And, and over the days, it might shift. It might change. So restlessness and worry. This one is udacha kukucha in Pali. And restlessness is pretty understandable, right? Anybody have that? <laughs> in the body, in the mind, there's a lot of spinning. Uh, worry can be regret or remorse about the past, something that we did, some memory, very painful thing, worrying about that. can also be worry for the future. So, gosh, planning mind. It can be relentless, planning, planning, anxiety. That's all in the realm of restlessness and worry. And the image for this one is water that's blown up by wind. You know, all that agitation. 
And it's very hard to see clearly when we're just so, uh. and this could be a mental thing, but often it's in the body. You know, you just feel like I can't even sit long, you know, jump out of my skin kind of restlessness. A nice way to notice this in retreat, you can sort of feel the nervous system, you know, when it's activated in that way. We rush, right? We're tumbling forward, going to the next thing. I got to rush to lunch, got to rush to the sit. I do this a lot because we're rushing so often in daily life that we bring that busyness here. And when we really notice, like, is there really a reason to rush? (laughs) Right? It's okay. It's okay to walk slowly. And slowing down is actually very helpful for restlessness. If the body's slow, the mind will help the mind calibrate some to that pace. So another retreat story. Uh, This winter, again, we had a lot of snow in Oregon, unusually snowy winter, which apparently can bring the mice. And so this cabin was built in the 1970s, the caretaker did a lot to, you know, find all the mice holes and plug them up. But about two months into my retreat, I started hearing them. And they come out right about bedtime, and I could hear them, you know, wrestling. They have a very kind of restless noise, you know, wrestling and running around their little feet. And at first it was okay. I just like, okay, we're going to live harmoniously together, blending like milk and water in this little cabin. But then there started to be more, and I found mouse droppings, and we needed to do something. And so um, I have a great, wonderful caretaker who has these have-a-heart traps. So they're live traps. You just put some peanut butter in there. And inevitably, when the mice come out, it's about bedtime, and they'll just go straight for the peanut butter. So this, this went on for a couple weeks, where most evenings, I hear the trap go off. Sometimes, you know, it gets getting dark around this time, or other times it'd be like two in the morning, trap would go off. And then the strategy, I don't know how effective the strategy was, but we decided I needed to walk it far down the hill across the creek so that they wouldn't find their way back. Don't know. I probably caught the same mouse a million times. (laughs) But anyway, that was our strategy. So inevitably the trap would go off. And, you know, it's dark, it's winter, it snows deep, and I would be afraid to go out and want, take this long walk. I was also a little afraid of the mice. So this mouse would be in there, and I'd pick up the trap. And, I mean, it was probably more afraid than I was. And I would look at it, and, you know, in that moment, still afraid, but it was also very cute. Like, big black eyes and ears, and, you know, sometimes they would pee, they were scared, and... So sort of managing this and realizing, okay, you're scared, I'm scared. And so walking with this creature down down through the snow at night, I started to do metta for us, both of us. (laughs) So I would, I have this song, this chant, I like chanting. Um, So I would sing this metta chant, which is basically the, the same phrases that we've been doing. So I'd sing this. Amhakam Araka Dewata Aweda Hon Tu Abya Paja Hon Tu Aniga Hon Tu Sukiatanam Pariharan Tu 
So I'd be like walking and singing, singing and walking. And inevitably, I would get, I would feel better, you know, be okay, I'm soothing myself, I'm soothing the mouse, get across the creek. And I put down the trap and open. And that moment when the mouse would jump out into the snow, it's like, you're free. And I felt free too. <laughs> we were free together. And it was such a good moment. Release from bondage, you know? So then, you know, happiness for this mouse creating its home on the other side of the creek. And you go back to bed. But <laughs> so this lasted a couple of weeks. We found the hole. We plugged it up. But for months, I was finding prunes because the mice found the prune bag and they were like ferreting away these prunes in my socks and in my (laughs) gloves and in all the corners of the cabin. And I started realizing that that's a lot what we do, you know, like restlessness is just this like trying to make it okay, like ferreting away my things so I'll be okay later, you know, like so much of this mind worry is that am I going to be safe? Am I going to be okay here in this new environment? And can I just set up my room and my schedule and how I do things so that it's going to feel that I'm going to be safe and okay? So I really started relating to that mouse. Like, oh, that's what I'm doing in my mind all the time. Just trying to figure out my life. So I'll have these little pockets of prunes. So if I get hungry, I'll be okay. So that opened such a doorway for metta. You know, like, oh, restlessness and worry, you're here, you know, so much compassion for these minds that are just like, "Ah, ah, ah," you know, like worried. So again, this one especially, I think just so much grace and a sense of like, we're here together, I feel you, you're scared, you know, a bow to it, like feel the feet on the ground, feel the seat, your seat, Come back to your body. I'm actually okay right now in this moment. I'm okay. You know, I don't need to plan all the things I'm going to do when I go home. Like, how am I going to get to the airport? <laughs> like, watch that mind and then, okay, but things are okay right now. I'm breathing. Come back. Yeah. Slowing down. All right. So we're making it through. We're at number five. Um, number five doubt is Wichi Kicha in Pali. So this one, I think, is the most uh, insidious doubt. It's the hardest to see and also kind of the most wily, the most slippery of all the hindrances. And it really manifests in all kinds of forms. So it can be doubt about your own ability. That's really a popular one. <laughs> Self-doubt about, I can't do this practice for whatever reason. Choose your story. Can be doubt about the teachers. Who are these jokers sitting up here? Like, what do they know? Can be doubt about the teachings, um, about the Dhamma, about even this lineage. You know, am I in the right retreat? Maybe I should have done Goenka. What about Tibetan? You know, it can really come in all of these forms. And I think why it's so wily and so tricky is that it, this is Joseph, my teacher, says it just comes disguised as wisdom. So some of these questions can feel right. Like, oh, maybe I shouldn't be walking here right now. Maybe I need to go. It'd be better, it'd be better if I was walking inside, right? 
Or, oh, I should be doing this differently. Maybe my posture is wrong. Or, oh, breath of the belly or at the nostrils or I'm doing it. You know, those kind of questions, they often feel like, no, I'm just trying to do practice right. But what they're doing is undermining our momentum, right? They're questioning, like, this, this underlying belief that there is a right way, and I'm not doing it. So same thing with questions about, you know, external circumstances. These conditions are wrong, or this teacher is doing it wrong. Those, those narratives, we want to get really familiar with the ways that those stories come in our minds, our favorite chosen doubt tape. And we usually give it a lot of room, you know. We spend a lot of time stewing and trying to decide. Often it's like indecision. Should I walk? Should I sit? Should I get tea? Spend a lot of time before we realize it's doubt. So it's nice to really get familiar so that right in the moment you catch it in the bud and you say, oh, this is just doubt. Hello. Bow humbly to doubt because often it feels so big. And you just come back to your breath. Come back to your body. Maybe it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how fast I'm walking. It doesn't matter where the breath is. Just really come back, right? Keep going. Yeah. Getting familiar with doubt, I think, is one of the biggest. It's a big moment, you know, when we can really look doubt straight in the eyes and see it, you know, really see you. I see you. And you don't believe it. You really don't believe it. You know, this beautiful story that I'm sure we know about the, the night of the Buddha's enlightenment, where he was assailed by all the hindrances. They came in all these forms, seduction and wars and weapons. And one by one, he overcame them. And then the very last one was this this voice of self-doubt. Strong, very strong. And then this beautiful gesture, you know, he put his hand on the earth and he said, the earth is my witness that this is my seat powerful. You know, when you have all these questions about like, who am I to be sitting under this tree and getting awakened? And we have this all the time, don't we? And yet this beautiful gesture of, but the earth is holding me, that big, big earth body is witnessing my practice. And this is my seat, my belonging, you know, really claiming your belonging here in this path, in this lineage, and naming a kind of dignity that you have, right? The Buddha said, we have this. We all have this potential. The earth is my witness. And at that moment, the earth shook, and the gods sang, and he was done. Nirvana. But it's so beautiful to to feel that sense of, is a really kind of divine pride, I think, that he had, you know, this uprightness. And we can do that. We can do that every time we sit down. I often do. You know, just feel the solidity of the earth beneath you and a sense of uprightness in your body. Like, okay, this is my seat. You know, this is my practice. I'm doing it. Regardless, come what may, all the nivaranas, (laughs) so that we can bow and say, the earth is my witness. I can do this too. And so to close, we, we meet these, these beautiful monsters. I love that phrase. Aren't they? 
they're beautiful and they're pretty monstrous too. And so we kind of greet them uh, with a lot of grace and compassion, so much patience, you know, a lot of humility in a sense of like we're all kind of on our own path being assailed by all the things. And then bowing, bowing sweetly really. Hello, I see you, making friends. And then knowing that they're really these passing defilements. They're not who we are. They don't define us. And that this is the whole path is that we're step by step learning about them so that they visit less. We really start to learn that it's possible to be released in all these ways from these hindrances. So I thought about that a lot through the winter and spring because we had all this snow and, you know, a lot of snowshoeing. I had my loop that I would walk and, you know, you get on all your gear and I have like poles and snowshoes and gaiters and, you know, as the months went by, the snow melted, then I'm wading through, you know, mush and slush and then mud. And over time, of course, as the spring came, the earth dried out and the trail became hard and clear. And then it's like, you know, you can fly up the mountains then. It's pretty easy going. And I thought about that, you know, like as I was walking easily in the late spring, that that's like the freedom from the hindrances, you know, that, that just ease of going along a clear path when the way is clear. And we have that. I'm sure you've had lots of moments of that even today. So we trust that we can, you know, inevitably as the spring comes after the winter, that this is the, the way that this path leads is towards this kind of freedom and ease. So Joanna Macy uh, translates Rilke in this beautiful way, the sense of we just keep going, you know, step by step, we just keep going. So Rilke says, flare up like a flame and make big shadows I can move in. Let everything happen to you, beauty and terror. Just keep going. No feeling is final. So we can just sit quietly here for a few moments together. Flare up like a flame and make big shadows I can move in. Let everything happen to you, beauty and terror. Just keep going. No feeling is final.
So we have a short period of walking, 15 minutes walking, and we'll be back to sit and to chant. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.